Welcome to A Story Most Queer, where every week we bring you a new story about queer characters and lifestyles, written by queer authors, narrated by queer voices. Pocket-sized queer stories for everyone. A Story Most Queer is brought to you by Mischief Media. This week's story is Queering Borders, a nonfiction essay, written and read by Reverend Benjamin Perry. Last December, I stood beside hundreds of clergy, looking out on a concertina wire barricade flanked by border patrol agents clad in flak jackets carrying rifles. Fifty feet behind them, the U.S.-Mexico border fence loomed, further separating us from the few dozen folks who had gathered on the other side of the wall. At first blush, this tableau may seem wholly unrelated to queer identity, fully removed from furtive hands grasped clandestinely in darkness, or gay folks proudly declaring love and commitment in front of God and their community. But, at least for me, the two are inextricably connected. Queerness is inherently political, a natural outgrowth of being born inside a body with desires and passions that others deem transgressive. From an early age, I recognized that trying to conform my life to normative contours was like inheriting a house you could never live in, one haunted by demons of who you could never be. It's decidedly strange, though, growing up and knowing something unquestionably true about yourself, deep in your bones, only to be told that it's a lie. People have asked, but I can't really remember when I first knew that I was attracted to men. There wasn't an aha moment when I saw some boy and said, damn, I guess I must be bisexual. And I think the absence of such an epiphany testifies to just how natural same-sex attraction feels for many kids, particularly for folks like myself who were lucky enough to grow up in an environment divorced from much of the worst homophobic rhetoric. There are those videos where they show toddlers from different racial backgrounds playing with each other, that people lift up to show how racism is something that is taught and learned, not an innate process. Homophobia is no different. I never had some cataclysmic shift in sexual self-awareness, because from the time that I knew that I was attracted to anyone, I knew that that desire did not correlate with gender. What I possess, instead, is a series of childhood epiphanies when I realized how other people regarded my identity with derision. I recall with clarity hearing a fourth-grade classmate call an undesirable Super Smash Brothers character gay with undisguised contempt, making a mental note that perhaps some aspects of who I am were better left unmentioned. I remember in seventh grade being asked to look at my nails. When I held my hand outstretched, the act met guffaws from boys in my class who scoffed and told me that that was the gay way to look at one's fingers. I saw one of the only out boys in my high school shoved into a locker, called a homo while his tormentors cackled. Bystanders looked on silently, myself included. It was bad enough hearing such bigotry from my peers, but it was the same toxicity recirculated in broader culture that truly stung. I'll never forget how... After 9-11, Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson blamed the attacks on the gays. 
I grew up in the shadow of New York City. On 9-11, we sat in the cafeteria as kids waited for their parents to call, letting them know that they were safe. Some of my classmates never got that call. And then later that week, my little bisexual Christian ears heard pastors halfway across the country blaming people like me for their deaths, using my holy book to justify that hate. To be queer is to realize sooner or later that your very existence is political. It is to know that, at least right now, our sexual lives can never wholly be our own, that we are not afforded the privilege to be ourselves out loud without comment. And for me, it was also the first time that I realized that the systems adults had built for me to live in were fundamentally broken. Well before I had arrived at any cognitive understanding of white supremacy or patriarchy or ableism, I knew experientially that the world would try to deny a core part of myself. I have no doubt that this understanding predisposed me to mistrust other hierarchical systems as well. How could a culture that tried to denigrate something so natural and beautiful be otherwise believed without interrogation? While I obviously would have preferred if my sexuality met open embrace, I don't begrudge homophobia that crucial lesson. That we should all be suspicious of anything defended on the basis of authority or legality, particularly when a claim contradicts what feels true. It's a big reason why I initially got involved in immigration advocacy. Sexual identity was a truth I knew deeply, even in the face of systems that told me to deny it. In the same way, I know that borders should not exist, that their very existence is violence. I know that no human being is illegal, that there is no reason why the undocumented families who live in my community should be treated differently by the law than my own family. I knew that was true in my bones before I ever visited the border, and before I gained the words and theory I needed to articulate why. I'm drawn to immigration work in part because queer people always find ourselves caught betwixt and between fixed hegemony, impacted by forces outside our control, and feel a certain degree of kinship with migrants who find themselves blocked by arbitrary borders. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say that these experiences are synonymous. Obviously, many migrants endure hardship and suffering that dwarfs whatever struggles I've faced. But I also don't believe that the physical borders we build around our country and the ideological borders we erect around our lives are wholly unrelated. Borders, sexual or otherwise, exist not only to keep out the people they exclude, but to communicate what is acceptable to those within their walls, pursuing compliance through fear. And so, when we confronted Border Patrol in San Diego, at least for me, there is something fundamentally queer in that action. If, drawing from Foucault, we understand queerness as the violation of fixed hierarchical categories, a bunch of faith leaders standing against the United States government, and solidarity with the people they're oppressing undeniably fits the bill. It was a moment that felt like an apotheosis of who I am called to be as a bisexual man and as a minister. Did I not mention that I'm ordained? That's another one of those confluences that, to me, feels entirely natural, but of which I'm frequently reminded I ought to regard as perverse. 
Although, fortunately, that seems to be changing as more and more courageous queer people embark on beautiful, world-changing ministries, a blessing for which I am forever grateful. But something I often think about in the context of ministry is the importance of liturgical and symbolic actions, how they hold the potential to indelibly alter our collective story. Queer people who live our lives openly and unapologetically are a public testament that Obviously, human beings have far more innately occurring sexual orientations and genders than what has fairly recently been edified as normal. And it's an important reminder of how ridiculous it is for some people to only call a man marrying a woman natural, when it's just one variation of countless genetic possibilities. If my existence is going to be politicized regardless of what I do, I am going to make damn sure that I testify on my own terms speaking truth as forcefully and eloquently as I can to fight for collective liberation. I felt called to pursue ministry for many reasons, but one of the central ones is that I believe deeply in the power of storytelling, its capacity to breathe a new world into being. There has been a decided technocratic shift in culture over the past few decades, particularly in liberal circles, and much to our detriment. By and large, people's hearts are not changed by graphs. Our minds are not swayed by data. Humans are storytelling animals, and you will never convince me that a stirring narrative's ability to affect change is anything less than magic. There's fascinating research, too, that suggests that this is not incidental, that our facility in telling, remembering, and retelling stories was crucial to our evolutionary adaptation. Before we developed this ability, the only way that anyone could learn something was through direct or indirect experience. You could not know a berry was poisonous without becoming sick yourself or watching another person succumb to illness. Storytelling facilitated our constructing a more complex culture, and I firmly believe that it holds the potential to heal the deep sicknesses that presently infect our own. And I think clergy have an important role to play particularly when it comes to queer identity. Homophobia, transphobia, and other bigotries are, first and foremost, pathological beliefs, and belief must be addressed directly if we want to unlearn what we have been taught. Moreover, our various faith traditions have played a distinct and regrettable role in constructing these fictions, and are thus both uniquely positioned and morally bound to deconstruct them. But addressing homophobia at all is not the only contribution queer culture can make in correcting cultural pathology. A full-throated rebuff of toxic masculinity, for example, is just one of the ways that queer folks can point us toward a more just and equitable future. Before I dive in here, I should point out that this is not to say that toxic masculinity does not exist in queer spaces. Lord knows that isn't true but I think it's indisputable that many queer men have carved out healthier ways of being, and that indeed healthier heterosexual male traits are often imported from queer subcultures. I'm deeply grateful to my bisexuality for the discomfort it always engendered when I found myself in toxic masculine spaces. That isn't to say that I never tried to fit in or acted in ways that I now find deplorable in that pursuit. But growing up, I always had a palpable sense that, even if I tried, 
I'd never be able to truly perform masculinity in a way that would be deemed culturally acceptable, while also staying true to my own feelings. I was always just a little too sensitive, a little too aware of others' feelings, a touch too reticent to engage in hostility for sport. And thank God for that. Because, to put it bluntly, Often, to act as a man in ways that are deemed culturally acceptable is to dive headlong into sickness. The aggression, competition, and, frankly, violence that we breed in boys is responsible for so much suffering. There's a reason why men commit 88% of homicides. There's a reason why one in four women in the U.S. experience domestic violence. Why one in four will be raped. While there are undoubtedly other factors. This epidemic cannot be separated from the ways that we acculturate boys. I'll never forget, one time when I was working in retail, a wife and her husband came in with their toddler son. He was there to pick out shoes and I was helping them. Instantly, the boy became infatuated with a pair of pink sneakers. I asked them what size he was so he could try them on, and the father became enraged. No son of mine is going to wear pink shoes, he shouted in front of his child. Instead, he forced his visibly distraught son to buy gray sneakers. Obviously, this is just a minor example of the way traditional male paradigms are forced on boys, but its banality for me is very much the point. Here is this child who is so thrilled at the prospect of wearing bright, colorful shoes, and instead learned abruptly that to gain his father's approval, he instead needed to wear something drab and colorless. Conversely, I will never forget the first time I saw a drag queen. The color, the flair, the willingness to cast cultural convention to the wind and embrace beauty, to revel in self-knowledge. Oh, to live in a world where the queerest visions of self-expression become part of normative acculturation for boys— how much more beauty, creativity, and love would we enjoy? But redreaming identity is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to what queer culture can contribute to cultural correction. For example, I've been thinking a lot about failure recently. How embracing failure as success can function as an antidote to the capitalism that defines productivity as self-worth. Jack Halberstam has a wonderful book, aptly titled The Queer Art of Failure which seeks to redefine how we understand what it means to succeed in simply beautiful ways. Failure, he writes, allows us to escape the punishing norms that discipline behavior and manage human development with the goal of delivering us from unruly childhoods to orderly and predictable adulthoods. Failure preserves some of the wondrous anarchy of childhood and disturbs the supposedly clean boundaries between adults and children, winners and losers. How much suffering stems from our pathological need to compete with others and with ourselves. If we wish to free ourselves from this pernicious prison, we must move from rugged individualism to collectivism, prize process over goals, and begin embracing what is named countercultural as normative. Again, we see the incredible promise in queering supposedly fixed boundaries and borders. Moreover, I firmly believe that once we begin to erode these ideological borders and boundaries, 
we cannot help but tear down the physical borders that cause so much suffering. Because, make no mistake, the physical and ideological are inextricably connected. Just look at our current president. For President Trump, it's pretty clear that the idea of building a wall is as important, or perhaps even more important, than its actual construction. The wall has become a cultural idol, a totem through which millions can imbue and express their racism and xenophobia. Chanting, build the wall, has become a perverse form of worship, a liturgical call and response between a demagogue and his supporters. It's therefore ineffective to point out that the wall is impractical, or talk about how it will disrupt ecosystems, or suggest ways that this money could be put to better use. While all of these points are undeniably true, they do nothing to address wall proponents' true passion. The great rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel once wrote that words create worlds, and this is undeniably true when it comes to immigration policy. It is bigoted speech and small-minded thought that is responsible for the despicable levels of popular support for walls and concentration camps, not the other way around. Gathered with clergy behind razor wire, threatened with violence for simply attempting to pray with migrants through border fencing, I witnessed distinctly how, as much as this administration treats migrants as a threat, it sees an equal threat in attempts by its own citizens to ideologically undermine its foundational worldview. What we need, therefore, is a wholehearted commitment to queering intellectual borders, to tearing down the metaphysical boundaries that separate us from our neighbors. And the great news is, you don't have to be queer yourself to engage in this work. All you need is a willingness to reject authority, an ability to question what you are told to believe, a propensity to attack thinking that breeds suffering and death. In the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, let this moment be our cultural Stonewall. Embrace your inner Marsha P. Johnson and chuck a shot glass at our unjust ideological foundations. A better world awaits. Thank you for listening to A Story Most Queer. Queering Borders was written and read by Reverend Benjamin Perry. This episode was edited by Leah Cornish. Our outro music is Round Daytime by Paratune. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. It really helps others find us. You can follow us on social. We are A Story Most Queer on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you would like to submit a story, head over to astorymostqueer.mischiefmedia.com to read over our FAQs and fill out the form. You can also check out mischiefmedia.com for the other shows on our network. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week for another Story Most Queer. <laughs>